Matthew 20, and I'll read verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me? For denarius. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to understand, and I pray, Lord, that you would have your Holy Spirit to uh, speak truth into the ears of all those here that listen. We thank you for this and all of your many blessings. In Christ's name, amen. I think uh, I remember my first property exchange, profitable one, as uh, being when a tooth fairy visited me and exchanged my nasty-looking tooth for a really shiny quarter. And I think that's the first time. I don't remember. I could have done something before that, but it was probably for some wage that I was earning. But uh, I was pretty excited about this quarter. Like I said, it was very shiny, but I didn't have it long. This leads to my second story of an unprofitable exchange. I had two older brothers, and I had a shiny quarter... And one of my brothers was pretty set on separating me from my shiny quarter. So I was out walking, and I don't know, I've, I'd probably had that quarter out a hundred times, you know, just looking at it. But uh, my brother took me to meet a kid up the street, and this kid had three arrowheads. And they're these kind of kids' arrowheads, you know, they're like a hollow end, you stick it on the end of a circular thing, and it's got a dull tip, and it's an arrow. Well, he had three of them. And my brother offered him a quarter for his arrowheads. What a coincidence. My brother has a quarter too. Oh, no. My brother wanted my quarter for these arrowheads. And so, like a doofus little brother, I gave him my quarter. So I hand this kid my quarter. The kid hands the three arrowheads to my brother. The deal is done. I get nothing. And so, see, we know that loss of property is painful from personal experience. I was young, but that hurt. I got cheated. They weren't done with me. They were maybe for that day. 
But a few years later, I had a mini bike. I loved this mini bike. But uh, my brothers had an idea, and they wanted to build a go-kart. But to make a go-kart go, you need a motor. So they needed my motor. And so here again, I have my go-kart. They take my engine, they put, or I have my mini bike. They take my engine, they put it in their go-kart. Now it's their go-kart. And I have a mini bike with no engine. So again, I came out on the short end of the stick. So see, uh, we think we'll grow out of this, and maybe we do. We don't grow as uh, bitter, perhaps, with property loss. But uh, we were watching a Christian comedian about a year ago, uh, Brian Regan, I think he's a Christian. At least he's known for clean comedy. And he was talking about how when little kids lose their balloons, they're so traumatized by this these helium-filled balloons, and the child loses it. They go out of the building, and whoo, there it goes. And they're crying. And we adults sometimes don't have much sympathy for these little kids. Ah, oh, you know, you'll have another balloon. Don't worry about this. But he said, let me give you an analogy. Imagine you pulled your wallet out of your pocket, and it started floating away. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so see, now he can relate that to an adult, you know? It's, it's annoying losing your stuff. It's really sad. So see, this sermon is about stuff. The title is Property is Incendiary. Now, incendiary is a word that's more commonly known to set fires. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. Another definition of incendiary is tending to create strife, violence, inflammatory. And so the fires that I'm referring to are more metaphorical. They're fires, strife, friction, frustration. Property is at the center of many, many disputes. I mean, there are people killed every day in the world for property. I was looking for news articles concerning this, and I was on Firefox, and in the first page, every news article about someone being killed over property was from India. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just an odd Firefox thing. Maybe they source all their news from India. But so I went to Google, and a lot of the first page articles there were also from India. So I thought, well, I guess lots of Indians kill one another over property, and it dominates the news. But uh, I then looked up statistics. And in this country, uh, and it's kind of an estimate. You can't be real exact because a lot of people don't turn in you know, property crimes. But uh, right now it's estimated that there, are about nine, there were about 9.1 million property crimes in the U.S. in 2010. And so to put that into perspective, that's about 16,000 property crimes an hour, or four to five per second. And so this is typically burglary, burglary larceny, and auto theft. That's how the big breakdowns are on this uh, FBI website. So uh, all of us have been the victims of property crimes. I know I'm not alone with my story about my quarter and my go-kart engine. Uh, we've all been had by people. And, and oftentimes we don't even know we've been had until long after the fact when we go to look for something, we can't find it. And then we realize, oh, someone has taken this. Uh, when I was a boy, my best friend uh, lived uh, just a few houses up the road, and he and I would often spend nights at one another's houses. And during one of these phases, we were both avid coin collectors. And one morning, we had spent the night at my house, and uh, one morning I woke up and I saw him looking at my coin collection and thought nothing of it. Years later, he told me that he'd been stealing coins out of my coin collection. And what's more, he was kind of bragging about it. 
he thought, I guess I was old enough by that time where I wouldn't care, but it still hurt. I thought, I would have never done that to him. But not only are we victims of crimes, we are often the perpetrators of crimes. And this buddy and I, we would go to this big department store about a mile and a half from us on our bicycles, and we would just steal stuff. I mean, lots of stuff. We were, like I said, we were into collecting coins, and so we would go into the coin row, and we would just steal stuff. And I'm still shocked that we never got busted, because even though I was in a fairly lenient home, I would have really been in trouble if I'd been caught stealing. Uh, but I thought my stuff that he stole, I thought, how could you do that? I'm your friend. How could you steal stuff from a friend? Stealing it from a store, you know, who cares, you know? They've got lots more, apparently. They could just ship it in and, you know, no one's really hurt, are they? But so we tend to rationalize things like this, property crimes. Uh, I was looking, like I said, I was looking for a news article. And it's just kind of ironic, you know, God's sense of humor. Uh, Friday morning, I had breakfast with Bill Watson. And for uh, some reason, the phrase popped into my head that was made popular by this uh, television evangelist back in the 80s. And he'd written a book. And he was the positive thinking guy, Robert Schuler, and uh, he had said, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And I remember reading this book, trying to get through it, and that phrase was like on every page. And I, don't, I forget why I was trying to read it. I mean, I knew he was pretty flaky already by, by that time. This was back in the 80s at the height of his popularity. But uh, anyway, I was quoting that phrase to my friend, you know, to Bill. And uh, then I look in the news for a news article related to property theft or property misappropriation, and who's in the news but the Crystal Cathedral? It has been bankrupt now for two years. Uh, actually, a Roman Catholic church bought the Crystal Cathedral, and many of you don't, probably don't know it, but see, I lived about, I mean, it was right down the street from me when I lived in Orange County. I went to a high school graduation there, and Tabitha and I did. And uh, I would go past there, and, and it was like a Catholic kind of thing. You'd walk the grounds, and there are people that have donated lots of money, and they have these uh, stones in the ground with their names on them because they're in. And uh, so, so uh, I was reading this news article, and it just brought back all these memories from back then. See, because my roommate at the time had a girlfriend who worked in the counting room at the Crystal Cathedral. And she told us about the experience. I mean, she worked there for, for months. And she had to have a security badge, and she'd have to go into this really private room. And then there's this room. There are no windows, no other doors. You go in and out this one door. There are cameras everywhere. And they sit there, and they open all the mail. And, I mean, they would get droves of mail in. And she said that she would sit there, and she would open one envelope. And it's like, oh, you know, and there's all this wrapping, and they're wrapping, wrapping, wrapping. And there's a dollar bill. Some old widow woman had mailed in this dollar and was deathly afraid it would be stolen, and so she wrapped it in all this stuff. She would open the next envelope, and it would just be stuffed with $100 bills. I mean, people would ship thousands of dollars in an envelope without a letter or anything. So, I mean, that's why they had all the security, because this place was really incredible. A lot of money flowed into there. And uh, now, if, you're, if you've read the news, uh, what it is is he went to court. He's 86 years old. He went to court. And uh, he, he had 20 members of his family on the payroll up until they went bankrupt uh, two years ago and to the tune of $2 million a year. Now, not only were they on the payroll, they were not just employees, they were somehow contracted. And right now, 
the dispensing of the Crystal Cathedral property is, has been held up for a year and a half because they're suing this, uh, the people that own the property, not his family, but they're suing them because they're breach of contract. They've had a contract that they're supposed to be paid all this money every year, I guess, regardless of what they do or don't do. Um, but it just goes to show you how property, we can develop the, these attitudes towards property that what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. So uh, this parable, though, uh, has always challenged me. Parables challenge us, I think, generally. It's, it's sometimes hard to know what a parable means, especially for me. Um, when you're a non-Christian, and you become a Christian like that, like I did, and you start reading the Bible, I loved Christ, and he's found in the Gospels. And so I'd read these Gospels, but these parables were puzzling to me. And I remember this one because I thought, this is not fair. What this landowner is doing with these people that worked all day is not fair. I can remember thinking that. And I thought, well, you know, who's right here? But uh, my warped conscience told me this was wrong. What this man did was wrong. And so if you don't find this parable odd, it's probably the benefit of your Christian upbringing, I'm thinking. Because I didn't grow up a Christian, and this parable really tested my early faith. I thought, oh, this, doesn't, this isn't what I signed up for here. This seems too weird. Now, before I get into the real text proper, I want to uh, talk a minute about understanding parables. And there are two points. First... Uh, parables can be easily misunderstood or misapplied, and so you have to think of two things when you're dealing with them. First, there is a primary lesson in the parable, the telling of a parable. There are perhaps other lessons, but there is a primary lesson, and that's the thing that's most important. And not all of the elements of the story necessarily have a long-term meaning, and so this story is pertinent just for this one essence and there are other things that are in the story that might not really have a great significance. So you can find yourself attempting to apply all the elements of a parable and be at a loss. Well, I don't know where this fits. It's like you're trying to put a puzzle together and you just can't figure out how they fit. Well, it's probably because it's not a puzzle and you weren't meant to fit them all in there. So you must uh, realize this and then you'll get the most out of these parables. Now, for instance, as I read commentaries on this parable, some people, there's a foreman introduced, and some people try to say, well, God the Father is the landowner, which he is, but yet the foreman is Jesus. But then it doesn't make sense. You know, you read the whole thing, and it breaks down because the foreman just kind of disappears, and then he's there, and there's no significance. It, if, if, if Jesus was the foreman, it doesn't really even add anything to the story. So that's, what I'm, that's an illustration of what I mean. But now the second point is this that I want to make, and that is that parables can, however, have other lessons. So mine will be based not on the primary lesson, but on a subsequent lesson, and I'll share that later. But uh, I first want to explain the primary, though, because I think it's important. I don't want to uh, dismiss the parable without really explaining to you what it means, because I have always loved this parable after I figured it out and after I you know, kind of overcame my, my just gut reaction against it. So now you have to realize where this parable is. Where is this parable? Matthew 20. What's before Matthew 20? Matthew 19. What's at the end of Matthew 19? Because see, when you read 20, it says, for the kingdom of heaven. So it's a continuation. And when you look back into the end of Matthew 19, what you see is the rich young ruler story. So in the rich young ruler story, you know he'd gone away sad, right? He'd come to Jesus all excited and said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? 
And then Jesus said, you do this, you do that, that I've done since my youth. He said, well, this you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then he went away sad because he had many goods and he didn't want to do this. This was way too steep a price for what he wanted. But then Jesus said this, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Now, you have to understand what that means. They were astonished because if anybody earns heaven, wealthy people earn heaven. If anybody deserves heaven, it's those that God is obviously blessing. So this has turned their world upside down. They're shocked by what Jesus said. So then they say, wait a minute, who then can be saved? And he says, well, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Then Peter said, we have left all and followed you. What shall we have? In other words, what's in it for me? Jesus said this, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he answers Peter's question. You will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel along with the others here. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And he made the stars also. Isn't that kind of a corollary here? and inherit eternal life. It's like you get all this stuff, oh, and by the way, you'll live forever, as if that's the unimportant thing. But see, this is what Jesus is trying to get at. He's telling them this in this way to, to shock them into a deeper understanding of what it is that he's saying. And they don't get it yet. It's obvious. So now Jesus says this, and he also says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This then is repeated at the end of our parable. So that obviously connects them. That is what the parable is all about. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And then right after our parable in 20, something else happens. But I won't cover that just yet. Now, two questions were asked. Actually, three if you include the rich young ruler. He had said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And then that's kind of what the disciples said. Who then can be saved? You know, theirs is different, but it's still regarding eternal life. And then Peter said, what's in it for me? So now, whose question is Jesus answering in the parable that he shares in Matthew 20 then? Because he's going on to expand on this. What is he really answering? Because he gives an answer here, but then he goes on to expand on it and talk again about it. So see, the primary lesson that Jesus shares here all revolves around this whole concept of reward. The primary lesson about the first, last, last, first is that God rewards who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And it has nothing to do with your effort. That is what was so shocking to them. So shocking that I don't even think they absorbed the lesson. Mother Zebedee goes to Jesus, and this is right after he tells the parable and she came to him in verse 20 of chapter 20 and asks them that her sons can be to his right and left hand. He's just told them in the context of answering Peter's question, 
uh, you know, what do I get out of it? That they're going to lead the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel on thrones. They're going to rule. Now she wants her sons to be basically the preeminent rulers. Talk about greedy. I mean, you're going to, your sons are going to rule in heaven. Oh, but I'm here to negotiate the chief position for my sons. <laughs> I mean, that's, she's audacious. And so this is where it's obvious then that they didn't absorb. The sons didn't absorb this lesson. Or if they had, they couldn't impart it to their mother in time to prevent her from coming to solicit these from Jesus. But then see, Jesus talks to the sons. Right after the mother asked this question, he addresses them. And they essentially, they're, they're participating in this interview now. So you can see their hearts are in it too. They, they might not have wanted to go at first, but their mother has talked them into it. And now they're there in Jesus' face saying, you know, yes, we can do it. We can do it. We're ready. We want to be at your right and left hand. So the primary lesson then, and that's what I wanted to share, is just God rewards whom he wants, when he wants, and in what way he wants. And we really have nothing to do with that. Now, there are two things that could be conflicting about that. But the first is this, and I think they're easily refuted. The first is that the labor cannot possibly be about salvation. They cannot be laboring for salvation, right? Because that's easily refuted all throughout Scripture that, that uh, righteousness is not earned. And the second, the fact that they all earn a denarius, that's what causes people to believe, oh, this is salvation that we're talking about. They're earning, they're wage earnings. But no, that's not because not one knocks that out. But so the same wage cannot reflect the same reward. In other words, what they're earning can't be, it can't be either. What they're earning cannot be salvation, nor can it be rewards that they will have in heaven. So that doesn't even have anything to do with the parable, really. So see, that's what's kind of confusing about parables. You just have to know what to discount, what makes sense here. And that's what makes sense. The fact that they each earned a denarius isn't pertinent to what Jesus' lesson is trying to convey. Now, let's skip into our story now. The, uh, the landowner has made this agreement with these folks, and it's, Larry, is, is it warm in here or is it just me? I'm getting hot. Yeah, could we turn the heat down a little bit? Hey, Larry, can we turn the heat down? Oh, is it up here? Thank you. Thank you, Michael. But... Uh, so he's negotiated, he's brought these labors all into his vineyard, and now he's beginning to reward them. Starting in verse 9, he says, And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. They received twelve times what they really should have expected to get. But he had told them he would pay them what was fair. That's what he appears to have told all of the people that came after the first ones that he uh, initially arranged with. Then in verse 10, But when the first came they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. So you can see it was their supposition. It was an assumption. It wasn't reality. It was an assumption. When they had received it, they complained. He'd hired them for work that morning. They worked all day. He paid them what he'd arranged to pay them, but they complained. They were upset. They said, you made them equal to us. They were offended by the fact that he had given those other people a denarius and he had only given them a denarius, even though that's what they had agreed to work for. Now, you have to, if this was a real story, you'd think the landowner could have easily avoided this muss and fuss, couldn't he? Just pay them first. 
give them their denarius and shoo them away. You know, they'll be happy. They got their money. They're heading off to the bar or whatever. So see, he didn't do that though. Jesus wanted the illustration to be all about this. He turned it all around. So see, now not only are they having to endure the insult of being paid last when they've been there first all day, but they see them getting the same amount of money that they eventually get. And now they're really upset about this. If none of this other thing had happened, they'd be happy. Just like the story I told last week about my friend that would have gladly repaired that woman's tire for nothing, but yet when she handed him a wad of $1 bills and he later counted it and found it unacceptable, he was really mad. Odd. It's just, you know, we are very emotional beings. And the same circumstances here that you'd be pleased with are offending you greatly over here. So see, the perceived slight is heightened by this. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted to do in the telling of this story. God is the landowner. And the landowner is really where the key is. So what did the landowner say in response to their accusation that this was unfair? The very first word is telling. Friend. A soft answer turns away wrath, right? And so even though he knows he's upset them, and that's the lesson that he's planning on teaching them, he greets them, friend. So it is wise to soften a difficult conversation with kind, compassionate greeting up front. You can sometimes be so stressed out about what's going to happen that it's almost like you're anxious to get into a fight because you know it's going to come. And so you're almost wanting to ramp up for it, get your emotions revved up for it such that you can deal with it when the response comes. But that's not what the landowner does. That's not what is right. We should be calm going into this situation. Uh, and it reminded me of that poem by Rudyard Kipling, If, it's a beautiful poem, I love it. But it starts out like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, and then it goes on and on. I don't want to say all of it. But at the very end, he says, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And what is more, you'll be a man, my son. And so it's all about keeping your poise in a difficult circumstance. And so that's a good start, friend. Now, what's funny is when I quote someone, I typically look into their history a little bit because I want to at least know if I believe them to be a believer or not. With Kipling, it's hard. Uh, he called himself a God-fearing Christian atheist. So I don't know what that means, nor do lots of people. Uh, but he was a Mason, very, very devout Mason. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But yet, when I read the poem, I, I ascribed to the poem. I like it. And so, even if he meant it from a humanistic perspective, I think you can take it from a Christian perspective and benefit from it. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Very, very simple statement of the truth. I am doing you no wrong. And Matthew Henry had a comment in his commentary that says, if God gives grace to others that he denies to us, it is kindness to them, but it is no injustice to us. And that's what's going on here. Someone else is getting something that you're not getting, and jealousy has reared its ugly head, and you're upset about it. But this is true. I am doing you no wrong. But 
why can we still feel wronged? When I first read this, I felt wronged for these people. I felt that they deserved better. But see, why is it then that they haven't been wronged? First, their attitude, their knee-jerk response to this, their gut instinct to this, that I've been offended, is predicated on selfishness. They wanted what was best for themselves. They didn't care about anybody else. They say they do, maybe, but they really don't. It's about me. If, if I get it, I'm happy, and I can then be as magnanimous as anybody on earth. But if I don't get it, I'm upset, and there's no magnanimity in me. I am upset with you because I didn't get what I've seen others have gotten, and I should have. And I tell you, in the workplace, this happens a lot. And so if you are thin-skinned, if you are not a person of integrity in this regard, these types of things can really make you bitter. And you just have to be patient. You have to recognize that you don't deserve all of these goodies that you might see other people getting. And what happens then, too, is because of our selfishness, we see other people get it and we can't be happy for them. We are envious of them and we want to hurt them or see them hurt. It's just a part of our fallen nature. But yet that landowner said, I am doing you no wrong, so therefore you have no right to be embittered. And then he says, did you not agree with me? The landowner brings up the wages now. We do not know who brought them up originally. The laborers could have negotiated a wage with the landowner, or they could have just agreed to what the landowner offered at the start of the day. You know, all the commentaries say that a denarius was a decent day's wage. It was normal. So some commentators, again, though, stress that it's likely that the laborers negotiated this because then they can kind of be blamed for being bitter about it, you know, that it wasn't the landowner's fault, so to speak. But I think that's going too far. I don't think the text takes you there. But in my studies, you know, I can't go deeply into this, uh, this Greek but uh, it doesn't seem to me that I can assume that the landowner is the one that agreed to a wage that the laborers suggested. So I just think that that's what was normal, that's what he hired them for, and, and that's what has happened. The workers agreed, but now they regret that they agreed because they didn't know this guy was such an idiot. I mean, here he is just giving his money away. I mean, I'm not coming back tomorrow. I'll come maybe at the 11th hour of the day, see if he'll scoop me up. But I'm not coming at 6 a.m. Only the idiots will come back at 6 a.m., right? I mean, this is no way to run a vineyard. Now, you can imagine, though, maybe he sold the vineyard. Maybe this is the last day he owns the vineyard, and so he has to get as much as he can because tomorrow it's somebody else's. That's the only conceivable explanation I could have for why a landowner would do this. This is crazy. But again, that's not the purpose of the parable. It isn't, it isn't to promote good business practices. It's just to share the story, share that principle that God rewards whom he wishes to reward. But they're morally outraged. Did you not agree with me? Now, he says, take what is yours and go. So again, he's brooking no argument here. He's not about to get engaged in a debate with them. You know what's right. You're just not man enough to own up to your integrity. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Psalm 15.1 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live in your holy mountain? And then a piece of verse 4 says, the one whose walk is blameless, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. 
they did negotiate that wage. They accepted it. They should accept now that they've earned a fair day's wage and go their way. Take what is yours and go. Now we get to the good part. This is the favorite part of this story, I think. He's told them, take what is yours and go, but now he asks a rhetorical question of them before they're leaving. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? It is rhetorical. He is not waiting for them to answer him because they know the answer. Absolutely, it is his right to do what he will with his own things. But not anymore. Not for us. This man, this parable, exists at a time, apparently, when this was common. You can do what you will with your own stuff. But we don't live in such a time now. We have such rights eroding away from us. What we can do with our property is really no longer our decision. It is heavily influenced by other people. And I'll give you just a couple of examples, not really about uh, like personal property like you might have on your home or whatever. But uh, back in 2008, during the height of the financial uh, meltdown, uh, there were people making a lot of money on Wall Street because they were shorting stocks. They knew which stocks were most overly inflated, and so they were doing what was called shorting them, which means that they promise to sell the stock to someone at a lower price than what it's selling for now, but like in a month or two. So they're betting that the stock is going to go down. So they borrow the stock, essentially, and they just have to have enough collateral. There's a, what's called a naked short sell. That's where you don't own anything. And yet there's also a covered one where you have, you have uh, collateral that's covering it. And so at the time, all the financial papers were really up in arms about this. There are people making money on our losses. That's horrible. You know, everybody's making and losing money on Wall Street. But it's only when the market's going down and people are making money that most are upset because most people, 80%, are planning on it going up. But these wise people that knew the meltdown was coming, that were making money hand over fist, are now suddenly evil. So it is popular to hate such people at times such as that. And so the popular press was just hating on them. And the SEC was getting engaged, and they were being sicked on them. And they did some damage. I mean, they actually, uh, the SEC came in there and said, these 19 firms, you cannot short sell these 19 firms because you've already run Lehman Brothers into the ground. We're not going to let you do these ones. So suddenly, it was no longer people's right to do what had been okay up until yesterday. They should have been able to do this. And another thing is concerning, and now we're seeing evidence of it again with this uh, Sandy, the Hurricane Sandy. Um, entrepreneurs could help in times of disaster like nobody's business, and yet they were prevented from doing so. And really, any wise businessman now doesn't even get involved. They stay as far away from these things as they possibly can. And it's because of this. Prior to the hurricanes, down in Florida especially, because they you know, get hit every year typically, uh, prior to a hurricane, when you first hear about it coming, plywood and water flying off the shelves. Everybody's buying plywood to board up their windows. It's cheaper to just nail up a $20, $30 piece of plywood than to replace all those plate glass windows. And so they go buy plywood. Well, of course, the plywood runs out. And now 
that guy got his plywood up and I don't have any. Well, you know why it runs out? Because the stores that sell plywood aren't allowed to raise their prices. And so the early people get in there and buy up all the plywood and they cover all their windows. They cover all their loved ones' windows, all their neighbors' windows. They cover all the windows. They don't care about you. They want their windows covered. And so see, if the stores that sell plywood had been allowed to raise their prices, that person would have gone in there and thought, oh, I came here to buy truckloads of plywood, but it's so expensive now. I think I'm only going to cover my expensive windows. So then they just buy some. Pricing forces sharing. And that is what the government is preventing from occurring in the lead up to a hurricane. Now, what happens, of course? The government doesn't want the early people getting all the plywood, so they're going to come limit sales if the stores aren't doing it voluntarily. Now you can only buy one. So now, okay, I'm limited to buy one. Oh, sad me. So I'm going to take my wife and my son and my daughter and my neighbor and my mother and my brother, and we're all going to buy one, right? I mean, that's how you get around such silly systems. Instead of allowing entrepreneurs to truck a whole bunch of plywood down from North Carolina to Florida and sell it on the streets, oh, no, that would be wrong. That's price gouging. Instead, no, we're going to go without our plywood or water or whatever it is that you're talking about. Now the hurricane hits. Everything is all mashed up, and the hurricane goes its way. And now you have companies that could easily move in with supplies. You have the Walmarts and the Lowe's that could just truck stuff down there, and they tried. They were sitting at the points outside of these devastation zones for days with all their supplies. They were even giving it away to just for, to, as, a, as a marketing ploy, and FEMA wouldn't let them in. Just craziness, craziness. We live in crazy times. And so property is at the center of this because property is, like I said, it's incendiary. It is the source of potential conflict for everybody, and we all face it all the time. Then he says, is your eye evil because I'm good? In other words, I'm just being generous with these other men who have been here laboring. I meant you no harm. I gave you what I told you I would give you. Go your way. You're just envious. You're evil because I'm good. And see, that is true. And when you get to that point, you realize, wow, you know, this guy is speaking the truth. I'm the evil one for thinking these wrong thoughts about what that man should do with his stuff. I want to place controls on that man. I want to make him do stuff so that my faulty sense of right and wrong is appeased. And that is, again, the world we live in, where we are participating in this uh, this uh, egalitarianism where they're redistributing income and it's never enough. They will always want more and more and more from the productive such that they can give it to the less productive. They believe that if all the people, these workers here, they believed if all the people weren't being equally benefited by this generosity, then nobody should because I'm last and I'm not getting benefited. I don't like it. So I'm going to be angry at you that we're benefited. Is your eye evil because I'm good? Absolutely. That's exactly what, he, what was true. So see, property is a blessing. God has blessed us with property. And I think at one of the future messages, I'm going to speak to this in more detail as to how the Ten Commandments uh, deal with this integration of God and man and property. 
I think the Ten Commandments is just a beautiful illustration of how God wants us to all address this and work through this. But the fall has left us with warped perspectives on it that must be corrected. The Tenth Commandment is kind of like the Tenth Amendment, ignored. If you ignore the Tenth Commandment, you end up breaking the other. The key one that the Tenth Commandment points to is the Eighth, but you'll break not only that one, you'll break all of them because you'll turn everything into a god. You violate the first and the second. I mean, it's just you'll see that covetousness is really the capstone of the commandments. It's the thing that is trying to contain all of the rest because it's forcing you to regulate your hearts, to, to see where it is that you, your love resides. The Tenth Commandment reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his plywood, nor his water, nor his, nor his denarius. You know, insert what you covet in here. It, it's supposed to be in there. It covers all this. I don't own a donkey. You can't covet my donkey. I have cats. You probably don't covet them either. I don't. And the Eighth Commandment is just simply, you shall not steal. And so the Tenth Commandment on covetousness is really a protection over the Eighth. It's to cause you to see what it is that you're protecting. So see, we live in a time of rampant rationalization where evil is good and good is evil. We have laws and rules that we've had passed down based on Christian principles, but they are eroding. And they will perhaps one day be no more. So, we have to remember where our true treasure lies. See, because all of what we have here on earth is property that God has value in, that we have value in, that means stuff to us. My little shiny quarter, you know, my mini bike motor. These things were useful to me. I liked them. They were, they, they were both gifts to me from my parents. Well, the first one from the tooth fairy, but the second one was from my parents. So see, let's not overreact to the loss of stuff. Let's not set stuff up on a platform and make it an idol in our hearts. Let's do, let's fight the good fight. Let's oppose tyranny. But let's not set our love on that stuff. We must remember the imper imperishable treasure in it is in heaven. Uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we know these are works where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I encourage you to lay up your treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, you have blessed us with so much, uh, but we do not want to value uh, the gift and forget the giver. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, have us to hold onto our stuff on this earth loosely and to honor you with our lives and our times and our uh, efforts and our stuff. We pray, Lord, that we would serve you faithfully. Please uh, grant us this, uh, an, a deeper understanding of, of how you would have us to use stuff and a, a truly a deeper uh, comfort and, and uh, ease with which we can treat our stuff and other people's stuff with respect. Uh, we ask you, Lord, now to be with us in the week ahead, to have us uh, glorify you through all that we do. 
uh, please uh, have us to remember that sin is a part of our past. And Lord, we live for you. We are your servants, and we uh, serve you faithfully in Christ's name. Amen.